Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to another episode of Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders brought to you by Nexus IT Security Group. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. Today, we have a very special guest. We are joined by the VP and Chief Technology Strategist at McAfee, Brett Kelsey. Welcome on, Brett. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I really appreciate it. Just so our listeners know, Brett's consulted for many, many years in the IT and cybersecurity space, brings a deep understanding of technology and security solutions across numerous industries. He's also been an entrepreneur. So today we're going to chat about the current state of cybersecurity specific to the talent gap, security challenges with IoT devices, and a little bit about self-driving cars. Let's get things kicked off, Brett. Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you are today? I got sort of thrust in the IT world pretty early on in my career. I had uh, I had several family members throughout my life, including my father, who started in computers in 1980, my stepfather, who had his own computer store in 1985, and I went to work for him straight out of high school, basically repairing computers and putting it together. So I kind of grew up as sort of a nerd. I spent a lot of time kind of playing around with different styles and different components of computer systems through my youth and into my early 20s, and I found myself pretty fascinated by various aspects of it. I had spent a stint working for companies like MCI and Bank of America and kind of playing around with those in the 90s. And when I got to the late 90s, I started working for some consulting company, this company called International Network Services. And inside of there, there was this small faction that dealing with network security. And arguably, it was back in that day, it was basically firewalls, maybe a little bit of authentication. But I got sort of intrigued by it. And there was this whole sort of super early on hacking mentality, even like bulletin board systems, which I used to play around with in the early days and some of the other things. There was a bit of that kind of some of the phone hacking and freaking and other stuff. And it was just sort of cool and geeky and fun to kind of play around with. But it was just starting to get into the actual kind of mainstream of actual customers who needed to deal with real security related stuff. And I got sort of intrigued by it. And so we ended up becoming kind of having a whole security division, and I ended up running that for INS for the Northwest group. There was a group of us across the country that we would all get together, and I became the security leader, if you will, for that organization, and that was pretty uh, it was pretty fun. It was a pretty good way to kind of get into it, and uh, definitely from a business perspective, and to kind of use some of those fun kid skills eventually as actually in the corporate world for good. What was really cool, though, is then... Once I decided to kind of move on from that organization, you know, is, is the company I had asked eventually became part of Lucent Technologies. I eventually popped out and decided I wanted to focus my career on cybersecurity. And as you mentioned, you know, kind of an entrepreneurial component. That's where I decided to start my own security consulting company. And that's all I did for a living. I did that for many, many years. And even to this day, my career has really been dedicated around, I guess we call it cybersecurity now, and that's the terminology that today's used. But back then, that wasn't even a term that was used. It's been kind of, I've seen the evolution of, of everything, and everybody talks around how hot the market is, and I, I agree. But what's interesting about it is, is that it feels like it's been that way for a long time, and it still isn't going anywhere. So, so that's a bit sort of my career. I mean, I've done the consulting, ran my own companies, 
working for big organizations. And of course, now here I found myself over at, you know, McAfee, dedicated to just doing cybersecurity related work. Yeah. Chief technology strategist at one of the, the largest security firms in the world. What does that mean? So I spend most of my time sort of dedicated where I'm a division or, or a part of our office of our chief technology officer. So from a technological perspective, me and my team's role is to go out and have conversations with our largest and best customers, typically talking to them around things like strategy, vision, but we do a lot of stuff around like what the future, what we see is the coming components, kind of prognosticating, if you will, around what the future of security is going to look like, what do we think problems that need to be solved out there, and we're talking quite heavily around that. And then we spend a little bit of time primarily working with our product management teams and technology guys, giving them a lot of direct customer feedback, saying, hey, look, this is the problems the customers are trying to solve for today and the future. We need to modify change, potentially even get in the middle of acquisitions and other things from a company perspective, driving the direction of the organization itself from a strategy perspective. And then finally, obviously, I do to do kind of cool things like this, where I'm kind of out in the field a little bit, where I'm not talking to the industry, if you will. So that's the primary makeup of our role. Gotcha. So one step ahead of, uh, of everyone else, it sounds. Try to be. I mean, I, you look, the bad guys themselves are, they're good, right? They're good at what they do. And I, so I don't pretend to believe that we can always stay one step ahead of every single person, but we do the best we possibly can, especially given the resources and in some cases, lack of resources we have. But, but yeah, it's, it's a matter of trying to do everything we can to try to stay ahead of the game. The attackers are the ones that are really you know, setting the tone of what we need to and, and how we do secure things. Right. You know, IT itself, what, what I find interesting about this industry is that IT has a common problem. And the problem today that I see it is that we in general take IT-based technologies into a given company environment and we go and we look at them and we say we really like that technology and we, we really would like to use that. And we actually can make a good business case of why we would want to use it because we've been shown all the really cool things around it. And so we go to implement that piece of technology and it's like, it's like a car, right? Like we get shown the car, we get seen the features of the car, we get to test drive the car. And then once we buy the car, what we actually get is the parts. So now we got to figure out what do we do with that? Well, Securities exacerbated that problem because I not only have to do it from an innovation perspective as a general rule, but we legitimately have a bad guy. Like there are people out there who make a living doing bad things in the cybersecurity component or world. And so in that scenario, we, we have a bad guy. And so we have to do everything we can to try to stay ahead as much as we possibly can. Yeah, good comparison there. Let's hop in to talk a little bit about the profession. So we came together based on a, a comment that I saw on LinkedIn from you know, another individual that works at, at McAfee, sharing that it's not that there is this talent gap of doom that's ahead of us. We're, we're in it right now. And what can we do to impact our programs in the present? So what are some alternatives that we can use to you know, make up for this talent gap that we are already experiencing? So the talent gap is an interesting one. I have a 16-year-old daughter who I am constantly pushing to go toward a STEM field of some kind, right? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, something in that world. And would I love her to be in cybersecurity? I think it would be fun. It would be great. And I would love to see more people take an interest in this particular component. You can look at all the, all the various 
studies out there, it doesn't really matter from a numbers perspective. They all are not good numbers. I've heard, I've seen one study that says 1.5 million, another one says 2 million. That's the gap of individuals to jobs by 2020, right? So within the next two and a half years, I think there was a study that was done by one of the U.S. federal government organizations that talks around this labor gap as well. And for that one government component themselves, they looked at it trying to solve their labor problem in the world of cybersecurity. And they said, well, how long is it if we start now and we start educating, even all the way down to the seventh, eighth grade levels, all the way up through high schools, eventually college, how do we solve this problem and get enough individuals who can actually solve our labor debt problem, if you will? How do we get there? And the answer was, well, it's about a 10-year problem it'll take us to solve that. And I scratched my head at that going, that this, I'm, I'm sorry, but the cybersecurity industry moves way too fast for that. You think that's your problem 10 years from now, and I believe that once you get 10 years from now, the problems you're trying to prognosticate today are not going to be those problems then. And so it's really hard to kind of get ahead of it. So the point is, is that we do actually have to think differently, and we have to look at a different sort of mentality. We can't solve the problem just by looking at it saying we've got to train more people and put more people in it. Do we need to do that? We do. I, I think there's absolutely a need for more individuals dedicated into cybersecurity, but that will not be enough and we won't be able to do it fast enough. So we have to look at things from a different way of putting things together. One of the things around that, when I think through those scenarios and you go, okay, well, well Brett, what does that mean Like when you say think differently? In my career years ago, I would be the guy who would go into an organization, especially my security consulting components in the days, and I would look at a given technology, and I would say, based on that technology, hey, um, we need to go look at the top things of that particular technology, and we need to sort of bake them off. Take data loss prevention as an example, right? We would look at the, the top DLP solutions. We would bake off the top one. We pick out the one we wanted. We put that in place for the organization. And then we turn around and we do the same thing for a web gateway and we do it for a firewall and we do it for endpoint security and we do it for, and just keep going down the line. Because there's a multitude of security solution sets. In fact, if anybody's attended a major security conference, such as like RSA or other ones like that, you go into there and the quantities of logos of security solutions feels almost endless. And so you're looking around and you're going, man, where do I start and what do I do? And what's my current problem of the day that I'm ultimately solving? And I'm going to implement yet another security solution set. And the belief I have in all of this is that we need to stop the madness a little bit. We need to stop looking at how do we get the next solution of the day technologically. And we have to change our mindset to start looking at how do we architect our current security postures and security technologies inside of a given environment such that the security technology itself starts to work better for us, starts to create a more efficient and a more effective solution set so that at the end of the day, I don't need as many people to ultimately operate the security solution sets. I mean, heck, you, you look at the latest breaches that have happened out there today. You look at some of the big ones that are in the news, guys like Target and, and, and some of these other ones over the years. And the one thing I've always looked at them, you look at their security teams, Man, they've got massive security teams. When they went back and did the breach components and the after-action reports, there were absolutely indications in those systems that said, hey, here's what's happening. Here's, you know, the bad guys going here. Here's an alert. Here's an... And they didn't catch the alerts and they didn't see them. And you go, man, were the security teams just not good? No, it's not that they're not good. It's that they're not effective. And part of the reason they're not effective is because the technology itself 
is all operating independently of each other. The easiest analogy I guess I would use is nowadays it's like me going out and saying, I want to create physical security, and so I have a bunch of people to protect, and what I hire is a bunch of individual body, bodyguards for each one of them. And each one of them have their own bodyguard that are all trying to individually protect them. Well, at the end of the day, what I'd rather have is a police force, not a bodyguard system. I'd rather have the police talking to each other who have communication systems amongst each other so that when they find something, they can tell everybody else, hey, by the way, be on the lookout for this. It's bad. And that architecture in the cyber world needs to come together as well. And that mentality has to shift. We've got to shift how we actually look at things both technologically as well as how the human capital is actually being utilized. That's, mm -hmm. that's my thought process in general and my philosophy on the different way of looking at that labor problem. Yeah, that sounds so much more realistic than uh, you know, some of the other alternatives. It also sounds like be critical having a leader that can put that all together. Someone that's leading a program that can capitalize on some of the technologies or other options that we have. Do you have any suggestions on how we can identify individual that is capable of different form of thinking? When you're trying to build your team and you're looking for the right leader to actually create all of that, what I tend to find in general is that when you end up with the person who was the, the technologist who grew by default into that, then that same technological bent and mindset has a tendency to follow them. When you start looking at an actual leader who knows how to actually put a team of individuals to get a mission accomplished, who can actually have people working together in concert with each other, that mentality also follows through into how they actually architect and what they want their final decision to be from a solution perspective. So you're looking for a different set of qualities with regards to that. The other thing about the leader, especially in corporate worlds, they need to have more of a business conversation these days. I'm seeing more and more organizations take their chief security officer type role and move them almost to a board level, or in some cases an actual board level. At minimum, they're reporting to boards. Right? I've got chief security officers who have to be accountable to a board of directors. And to go have that conversation with a board of directors, the board of directors does not care what logo of what product is sitting there trying to protect you and how things work or don't work with each other. They can care less about that. They care about the business aspects of the organization. And the leadership in that team needs to be able to articulate that and become a translator with regards to both the technological function, but ultimately into the business aspects of the organization. So it is certainly a different set of qualities that you're looking for of the individual than what we used to in the past. You know, we would take the technology guy, he, he knew security, he was the firewall guy, and we would graduate him up. We really need to start looking at a different mentality around that too, from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. well, that's great insight. As much as we, we'd like to get that uh, change in thought, it's going to struggle some, some bit to educate at that level, of course. You know, I know some companies are starting to latch on to hiring non-traditional talent uh, and such. So what suggestions do you have for identifying high-quality security talent or security potential even? I'm looking for some unique qualities if I'm looking for a leadership component. But just cybersecurity talent in general one of the number one things that I like to look for is creative thinkers. I want guys who, when I'm designing, building, and actually trying to put together programmatically and ultimately from a security technology perspective, I want guys who have a creative mindset 
about how they go about solving problems rather than the person who just routinely goes, oh, yeah, this is what I do, and I follow this routine every single time. The bad guys are super creative, and you have to basically match some creative talent from one to the other when you're hiring and you're putting those hiring practices together. And you may not necessarily have to hire that person who is sitting in the field of cybersecurity, per se, or a technology firm. He might or she might come out of a different field altogether, and you're looking for that kind of creative thinker on how they actually solve those problems to actually then bring them in and look at, oh, hey, take that mindset, and now let's start looking at the cybersecurity world and help me apply your creativity to this, and let's start figuring out those kinds of talent components in that talent pool. We've got to start looking at alternate resources with regards to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, how can we alter the hiring process to start pulling some of those traits out? Yeah, that's probably one of the tough ones because we all have muscle memory, right? Like we all have a tendency to go back to what we've always done. So if I'm hiring for a cybersecurity guy, he's got to manage my SIM solution or my firewall solution, but I'm going to go try to hire a SIM administrator or a firewall administrator. And if you have past experience in that particular technology, then at some point, At the end of the day, you know, that's what you're going to go try to hire again. I'd rather train a guy on a given piece of technology. That's the easy part. Trying to train the creativity is the hard part. So what has to happen in this is you're looking at just a shift in mindset in the industry. It takes time. It's a cultural thing from a human perspective. So I don't have an easy answer for that because I'm certainly not the type of person who's going to immediately tell you how to shift large-scale mindsets from a cultural perspective. But I think more evangelistic individuals who are talking around this new paradigm shift in mindset, the more we can start to educate at the leadership level, the more we're going to start to see that shift happen. The other place that it's starting to happen, too, is the boards themselves are starting to demand a different component of their leadership in the cybersecurity space. And that's going to start to dictate that shift as well from a from an industry perspective. Yeah, definitely interesting there. Let's talk a little bit about connected devices and specific to some different industries. From your perspective, what industries are most impacted by IoT devices specific to causing security vulnerabilities that may have not been there previously? I don't know that there is one particular one that isn't. It's all over from everything from very simple based devices. I mean, if you go back and look at something super simple like the, you know, the Mira slash Dyne DNS kind of attack thing and where that came from and that botnet that actually hit them. I mean, that was nothing more than, you know, a, a particular IoT based board with a default password kind of configured into it. But the various devices are somewhat endless that that board ultimately ends up, right? It was a lot of them were IP video cameras, a bunch of other components. And those are just super simplistic devices. The ones I really care about, I mean, you can turn those into botnets and you can do some crazy stuff. That part's fine. But the ones that, that start to really make me just super, super nervous in today's day and age is anything in the critical infrastructure, I'm highly worried about. And I mean things like energy, oil and gas, movement of that, movement of transportation. If you look at the train systems, you know, there's a lot of autonomous type movement and a lot of technology kind of built into that. So there's some issues with regards to, I mean, if those things start to get compromised, you start dealing with human lives. Like they're, like you truly can affect the human component of that by taking a compromise down. And we've seen that, like the Ukrainian attack and the power industry that happened a year and change ago, 
people were without power for, for many, many hours. And at some point, if you start prognosticating a particular geography that doesn't have power for an elongated period of time, again, human lives start to get affected with regards to that. So that's sort of the critical infrastructure. I worry about that. I also worry pretty heavily around healthcare. The healthcare field is, is pretty nascent. They're older from a technological perspective. In a lot of cases, the devices that sit on there, on those environments in, in the healthcare space, they concern me because, again, it goes back to the human life thing. They're attached to human beings. About a year and a half ago, I still just remember sitting there. I was in the hospital. I had my appendix removed. And I wake up after having surgery, and I've got all this stuff attached to me. And I and literally, I'm mentally thinking, I'm like, all these things that are attached are busy monitoring, you know, my heart rate, my blood pressure, and a bunch of other things. Technologically, they're all attached back to various nurses stations and other components. If you affect those systems, you're, you're affecting me as a human being. You're affecting my medical care. And that's a heavy, heavy concern. And we've, again, we've already seen those kinds of things happen in kind of where they're going. I do love the future. Uh, you know, if you start looking at, okay, what's the next one and where do we go after it? I mean, you know, everybody keeps talking around this whole like autonomous vehicles and driving and kind of where they're going with that. And I love following that industry. It's huge. But there's also this sort of nefarious side that goes. There's obviously, we've already proven that you can hack a vehicle. There is a big article that came out shortly after that, that this, that they came back and they said, you know, that's not really true. You can't totally hack a vehicle. These guys did this, this, and they, they start kind of downplaying the need for that. But I find it interesting. The biggest argument they make, and it is that the vehicles ultimately have to have connectivity in the vehicle itself. You have to have a way to get to them. Well, the, the problem is, is that we're building more and more connectivity into almost every new vehicle coming out. There's all kinds of mechanisms for actually having actual connectivity to that vehicle. Bluetooth is obviously the simple one, but that's super short range, so may not be overly effective and you may not worry about that. But clearly, cellular services, as they get stronger, are being built more into the car. And more importantly, the cars themselves are, are almost becoming like mini data centers. One of the most effective ones I found was kind of interesting. If you look at like Tesla Motors as an example, pretty early on, there was some proven vulnerabilities that Tesla had in their system. The cool thing about them was that because they have a very solid connected component and they literally have the ability to, to blow software updates down to their vehicle fleet, if you will, at a whim, they were able to solve and create a patch and push that to all of their particular connected devices because it's part of their normal ecosystem on a normal basis. Well, that isn't necessarily the mindset of a lot of the other car manufacturers today. It might be in the future, but it certainly isn't today. So they create connectivity, they create that capability, but the software update function and all of the other ecosystem that goes with that for other manufacturers doesn't necessarily exist, but the vulnerabilities certainly do. And again, that's, been, that's already been proven out there that we can find those vulnerabilities and we can leverage those vulnerabilities to our advantage. And that's just today's day and age. If we're not thinking about those kinds of things for a future perspective, we're going to paint ourselves into a corner because we're going to find ourselves with a ton of connected devices sitting out there that have all kinds of security vulnerability component and no way to actually fix it or update it from an overall device perspective. So that whole world itself, there's certainly, and then of course, you know, okay, Brett, what, what happens when they take your car? Okay, great. There's a couple of minor things. I mean, I could put ransomware in your car and I could make it where, you know, now you got to pay me a Bitcoin to be able to drive to work today. 
okay, I mean, that's kind of somewhat interesting. But what happens if you actually get to the autonomous vehicle component? Where I don't necessarily have a human in the thing, and I just take over the driving mechanism of the car itself. What happens with that, and what does that car then become for me? Because I can use that car to do things like, I don't know, drive it into a building? I mean, there's just a lot of bad things that potentially could happen if we're not careful in how we actually deal with a lot of that. There's an actual communication system that's being built. In fact, there was a, there was a, a recent, almost at the presidential level, where he looked at this and he was going to mandate that this connectivity protocol be installed in every single car. And I think, I think he ultimately backed away from it. But at this moment, as far as it being a mandate, but there are many car manufacturers who've already gone forward and put a standardized communication mechanism in the newer vehicles out today where they can not only talk to each other, but they can talk to traffic management systems. And so you've got a communications component, and that protocol is sort of sitting dormant. It's not necessarily being used today, but it's setting themselves up for the future. So they're, so they're getting smart on where they're going to go. My question that starts to become is, what's the security component around that? And more importantly, what's the level of data that's actually being transmitted between these types of devices? When I say the level of data, like if I'm, if I'm driving along and I have my car and it comes up to an intersection and it's being controlled and it's getting ready to turn left, does the intersection need to know what my final destination is? I contend it doesn't. It only needs to know that I turned left and it needs to know that I made it successfully through the intersection. And that's it. That's, that's all it needs to know. In fact, the car itself doesn't need to know that I'm going to the dentist. It just needs to know the GPS coordinates of my final destination. It doesn't necessarily need to know. So, so the level of data that actually gets transmitted in amongst these programmatical computer systems, I think we need to take a little heed of where we're putting that data out there and what are we using it for and who's got it stored and those kinds of things as well. There's definitely a lot of future thought process that people are trying to put into this. And I think the security elements of them, well, to some degree are there, have a tendency to be kind of afterthoughts, if you will. Just an opinion question. Do you think the first successful, secure, autonomous vehicle will come from a technology company or a classic manufacturer like GM? <laughs> you know, I feel like the tech companies the more technology-based co- I mean, I, I guess here's what I would ask the question. I would, I would almost, you know, respond to that and say, uh, where does Tesla Motors fall into that? Yeah, I'd beg that they were a technology company. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I think the technology companies probably have a little bit more successful components to that. Our former parent company, uh, Intel Corporation, had a multitude of platforms is, what, is the term that they use. They have platforms on the back end. In other words, they own the technology that sits in a lot of the classic car companies. And of course, you know, when things start to get hacked, one of the things that they did even at that point, in fact, uh, we were part of them when it happened, we being McAfee, is we actually just formed this whole board specifically to auto manufacturer cybersecurity around those particular devices. I think the I think everybody's starting to take notice a little bit around them, but I do feel like the technology companies themselves have a tendency or a leg up because they don't have the legacy of the actual car manufacturing processes. They have the ability, they have more of a technology-based mindset in where they're going from a future perspective. So your organizations like Tesla or Uber is another one. I mean, they're, they're in the middle of building autonomous vehicles themselves and several other ones, the Waymo organization, you know, that, that's 
by Alphabet or Google's parent company. Each one of those, I mean, they're building some really, really cool stuff. And I think you're going to see the security components be at least initially stronger with them. So is the data connectivity and the update process too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be a my little... opinion, by the way. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it might be a little bit forward thinking, but what do you think the knowledge transfer is going to be like between the, the manufacturers of these autonomous vehicles and potential end users, or I guess, passengers? I know in our office, the biggest question is we're ever going to make it totally secure. And that's where a couple people are, are struggling to think that this will ever be something that comes to fruition. But what do you think that knowledge transfer is going to be like between you know, the company that's building the car sharing, you know, this is secure, you can be confident in this, and your your passenger, your purchaser of that uh, autonomous vehicle? I think at some point, it's not going to matter. But if you really want my opinion, it's not going to matter. We as human beings have a natural propensity to want functionality and availability way over security or confidentiality. We do it all the time. And what the other part about us is we will ultimately get callous to things actually happening, even from a cybersecurity perspective. Take a simpler component, credit card fraud. How often does that happen these days? All the time. How Every day, right. It happens. I mean, Equifax was huge. 40 plus percent of the U.S. populations ultimately affected all of it. Yes, it's a giant thing. It will change regulations. The U.S. government will get involved regulatorily. That's great. All that stuff's going to happen from a human life perspective. Did we change anything we really did? Not, not really, right? Like we, we all just continue on with our daily lives because we're still applying for loans and we're using our credit all the time. We're still out there constantly getting our credit scores. We're going to have availability of these things that come to us. And we have a tendency to be, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad. Again, this goes back to my opinion from a human perspective, but my belief is that human nature has a tendency to want the cool capability first, regardless of the consequences. And once an actual major consequential action takes place, that's when we ultimately want to react. Now, all of a sudden, we come back after the fact and we go, oh, you're right, we should have had security, or why didn't somebody put that in play? And we start asking those kinds of questions. But, but it isn't until the events start to occur that we start getting into this, this is how it should be. The person who says this is not going to happen, I think back in the 80s or 90s, people were sitting there going, yeah, the entire world will never be connected to the internet. Now, here we are today. I think it's an inevitable truth I was having a conversation with a family member recently around the autonomous driving and, you know, and, and she says, she goes, I don't, I don't ever want to be in a, on a road where there's a car without a driver in it. And I said, well, I, I, I beg to differ with you, but I would believe, and, and I do believe even in her lifetime, and she's in her early 60s, I said, even in your lifetime, I said, you're going to not only want that, you're going to end up in a scenario where you're going to not want to be on the road where there's a human driving. It's going to be safer. It's going to change environmentally, it's going to change our world. Think about the resource space. Like at some point, you may never, you may stop owning a car. You don't need it. Car just comes by, picks you up, takes you to your next destination. From an autonomous perspective, you're not worried about it. Your traffic component changes wildly. You don't have to worry about human error. The cars are communicating with each other. They're communicating with the road systems. Now all of a sudden, traffic just flows because it's absolutely controlled from an overall mechanism perspective. You don't necessarily need parking structures anymore because you're not taking your car and parking it anymore. You're just coming outside, vehicle's there, it takes you to the next destination. 
you don't care anymore about having that. So there's a lot of things that are going to change over that period of time. And eventually, as those things start to change from a cultural perspective, we're going to find ourselves just adopting a different lifestyle and the capability of what we're doing. And we will evolve into all of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think yeah. the security stuff is going to stop us. Yeah, yeah, I'm all in on autonomous vehicles, create an entire new industry and bring back public transit. I'm all in on it. Yeah. You made a point that it's not going to be top of mind until an event happens. And I can see in the future, Tesla just rolling out these semi-trucks that are going to be autonomous in six years or what have you, you know, an entire fleet of them getting hit with with ransomware. Now the whole fleet, all the freight is is shut down on the side of the road. I can imagine that that could potentially be a a great target for a criminal. So I'm curious from your perspective and even an ethical perspective as a security expert, what are your thoughts on paying a ransom? Huh. I think it's um, I think it's silly. I've had organizations actually tell me in their active security posture and policy that they actually have now created a fund that they set aside. That if they get ransomware, they just pay the ransom. And if you look at the latest variants of ransomware that are coming out from a bad guy perspective, it's a volume issue for most of them. They don't care if you ever, you'll never get your data back, even if you pay it. So if you looked at like how it was built for ones like WannaCry and NoPetya, those major ones that happened this last year, you could pay the ransom all day long. You're not going to get your data back. So why would you pay? Like, what would be the purpose of paying? They want you to pay. They want you to think you're going to get your data back. They'll make it seem like that every single time. But it's a volume thing. I mean, you know, a small percentage will pay. They will make money on it. And those people will never actually get their data back. I wouldn't pay. There's no reason I would ever argue for actually paying, and I would never advise an organization or a board of directors at this point to pay because, because unfortunately, it's, there, there's absolutely no guarantee it's going to happen. So that's, that's just my sort of two cents of it. Somebody could certainly have an argument the other way of why they think you would, but, but I'm not seeing a good circumstance that makes sense. Sure. Well, going to put a little little carrot out in front of you and make this a little bit more challenging. So, you know, let's say sure. a hospital went completely under ransom and from a healthcare perspective people are at risk you know there's there's big challenges there do you pay in that well, situation okay you can i mean look like hollywood presbyterian paid right like as an example they paid money now they they wanted millions and i think they settled for i don't remember the exact number off the top of my head but i want to say it was like 19 or 20,000 or somewhere in that range like it was a significant amount less and the real question is did they ultimately at that point get their data back or did they get their systems back freed up so that they actually could continue on? And I believe the answer is they did. And that's true. What I'm saying is, is that today's mentality of the bad guy, they're not, like you got to look at the actual what you're infected with. If, if you're not capable of getting it back, then why would you pay? You know, the, the real answer is how do you do that? What do you do? You know, what's interesting too is like, like we're heavily involved, obviously, from an organization. We're heavily involved in the ransomware component. So obviously at a corporate level, we've got technologies that can, that can help and solve a lot of those problems if they're proactively put in place. But even in a philanthropic way of doing that, we actually have an entire dedicated organization, not just us. There's a multitude of companies involved called nomoreransom.org. And one of the things about that is, is it allows an organization who potentially gets hit to go to that site and say, hey, first and foremost, let's identify what I got hit with. And if it turns out certain ones sitting out there from, a, from an encryption perspective, we actually have enough 
back-end data that we can decrypt certain ones of those as well, and we can decrypt them for you for free. So we are absolutely trying to solve and help the industry from an overall problem perspective. But if you're going to find one, as we start to diagnose them, if you find that the industry leaders in the cybersecurity space, like ourselves and, and several others of us out there, if we've identified that and we've reverse engineered and looked at the actual ransomware component, and there's no way for you to actually get your data back, even if you do pay, even in a hospital scenario, why would you do it? I mean, don't misunderstand. I completely agree. It affects patient lives. It would affect me if I were sitting in that hospital. But if you go and pay and it still doesn't change the outcome for me, what's the difference? Yep. So no matter what, got to do your homework. Yeah, it's not simple. It's not a simple answer like, oh, yeah, immediately I'm just going to pay. Sure. One last question, and then we'll get into overrated, underrated. So you know, as a strategist sure. and futurist in the space, do you have a theory or idea that you think has the most potential to greatly impact businesses and cybersecurity as a whole? How far out? Most immediate. Ah, you know, the most immediate problems, I'd say 98% of today's immediate problems are solvable with given technology that hit today. The biggest ideas that, that we have around this is how do we start creating actual capability to make systems talk to each other and, and there, are, there are things out there that actually exist. So it's a little hard to prognosticate kind of the, the immediate future because the immediate, quite frankly, as much as people go, yeah, I've got this problem, what they really need is they need to just implement things in a slightly different way and they can solve it today. We've, we've created a lot of that. If I were to actually look a little farther out there, one of my, I find kind of interesting and I keep thinking around this and I've seen a lot of stuff is I'm, I'm really interested in where the advancements of blockchain are ultimately going to be capable of taking us. I'm super interested in how do we start to leverage it to do things in the cybersecurity space. I'll give you one example on this that I've started to think through a little bit and play around with and the mindsets. And, and, it, and it doesn't completely pencil out yet today. So it's just literally sort of an idea component that sits out there. But Obviously, blockchain is being used heavily, obviously, in the cryptocurrency world with the things like Bitcoin and several of the other ones. But the premise behind blockchain in and of itself is the concept to create this uh, basically undeniable register of all things out there. Like you have the ability to register something and have a ledger of actual transaction component that goes with that. And obviously, a financial transaction is the way it's being used today, but you can use it in all kinds of other transactional functions. So imagine this sort of concept is that you ultimately end up with blockchain being used in the cybersecurity space from a future perspective, such that if every single piece of produced good software file, if you will, is ultimately registered through an authenticated mechanism that, that is built into the blockchain technology, then technologically speaking, if you're not authenticated through that particular network, then you're considered bad. And if, if you're bad, I'm not going to install you or it's not going to work. And so if you think about that from a technology perspective in the future, you could leverage blockchain-based technology to ultimately solve the vast majority of the file problem out there in the world, the bad files. Because anything that gets produced that isn't actually valid and registered, it just flat out won't run. 
you know, I know it's a giant ecosystem. It's a giant thought process that kind of goes with that. But I, but I do believe things like blockchain are going to be huge game changers for us from an overall perspective. And I would love to see us do that sort of in the cybersecurity space as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so interested as well. It seems like there are some significant viable uses of blockchain in some of our most important sensitive industries. So overrated, underrated, got a couple of good right. ones interested on your thoughts. So this first one might not necessarily be in a, a corporate mold per se, but curious on your thoughts of the security vulnerabilities that come up from the Amazon key system. Are they overrated or underrated? I think they're underrated today. I think we don't pay enough attention to what happens specifically when we start moving stuff into the Amazon-based capability out there. And so I, I don't think we're I don't I just don't think we're paying enough attention to any of any of that today. So the vulnerabilities that exist out there, I think they're, they're potentially gonna be a heartburn for us. Not to pick on Amazon, but stemming from the recent Uber breach, or I guess not so recent year in the past breach, but just now coming to light. What's your thoughts on storing sensitive data in a public cloud? Is that overrated or underrated? Yeah, I think that's underrated. We love to give agility ahead of of actual security components, and we give up visibility. We have no idea when we start moving data to cloud, the vast majority of the organizations have no idea what's happening to their data once it gets moved to cloud-based services. If you have a breach in that data pool out there, how do you know? And even if you do know, how do you actually deal with that problem? Whose responsibility is it from a cloud provider perspective versus yours? That right now is a highly underrated area of concern. Yeah, it just seems like the mentality of everyone's doing it, so let's do it and not really thinking it through all the way of, of you know some of those challenges come into play. Okay, last one here. Upping efforts on the security side during high traffic times like Cyber Monday. Is that overrated or underrated? I think it's kind of overrated these days. If we put the appropriate processes in place, the organizations are doing those particular kinds of things. The high traffic components are just that. They're, they're just another day at the office. I think, it's, I think that's kind of overrated for us. Okay. Yeah, great. Well, hey, this has been fantastic. Incredible insight. Thanks, Ben. You take care. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.